Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Today, Andy will be answering questions submitted by you in no particular order. There have been a lot of questions about GameStop. Obviously, it's sort of interesting just how viral the whole thing is and how it went to a top story on cable news with various players in various roles doing the interview circuit. I want to focus on the things I think the sort of main stories are missing and the way in which the primary narrative is likely wrong. Of course, there's the storyline of what I've heard called, you know, flows versus pros, the little guy versus the big guy, the populace versus the establishment, and then the establishment kind of fighting back with various uh, brokers suspending trading and so forth. I think that's, you know, sort of a convenient storyline and people like that narrative. I strongly suspect if one really dissects the numbers, which you know I haven't done and I can't really access the data to do that, but I think if one looks deeper, that's very, very likely wrong. According to Google <laughs> uh, this morning, Robinhood has 13 million active accounts. If the median account is $10,000, and I suspect it's less, but if 13 million times 10,000 is uh, 130 billion, you know, add other platforms, say it's a little bit larger, a few hundred billion, roughly the size of Bridgewater, dwarfed by institutional money. And certainly enough, if organized and put in a concerted action, enough to cause a disruption in a handful of stocks. In context, Bridgewater, roughly the size of all of the potential home traders, you know, people sitting at home. Uh, Tesla, which some of these people own, market cap approaching a trillion. In a normal world, that size tail wouldn't be wagging a substantially larger dog. I don't think it's actually the tail. It may be part of the tail if the numbers actually come out and so forth. One suspects the much bigger player, the larger determinant, is the algorithmic money in conjunction with huge amounts of stock being effectively locked up in index funds and ETFs. Now, most of the algorithms will look at volume, changes in volume, unusual activity, but also short interest and momentum. I think you'll find that most of the trading in GameStock is going to be algo to algo, and that at the end of the day, the holders of the algorithmic trading will probably have made money. The hedge fund shorts will have lost money. A handful of the individuals who owned early and sold and never came back will have made money. But the real players, the real dollars, the real force at the end of the day won't have been the Robin Hood traders trading from home. I think from the point of view of wanting an efficient or nearly efficient or as efficient as one can get allocation of capital, the concentration 
of index funds, effectively locked up stock, algorithmic trading, and small dollar individuals trading at home is certainly not the best. And most of the people I know would look at the market action and say, this is broken. This is not something I want to be involved with. And if it's a possibility for somebody, I prefer to own businesses to owning shares. So point one, algorithms and index players as central to the story. The other thing that I think is interesting and has sort of broader application in the book Sapiens, the pronunciation of the name of the author escapes me currently, but in the book Sapiens, the author talks about what he calls intersubjective reality. So in this construct, there's objective reality, sort of physical things. You know, think about the Pacific Ocean. That has a certain kind of reality. There's purely subjective reality. As I speak now, my feet are cold. That purely subjective, just me and the experience I'm feeling right now in my extremities. You know, both of them real in a certain sense, both of them true. But then there are things like the existence of the United States or the existence of GM, things that are true, but only true by dint of massive acceptance, kind of a mass collection of subjectivity. And, you know, nobody would say the United States doesn't exist or corporations don't exist or they don't possess a certain status as real. But obviously, they're not real in the way that things we think are governed by the laws of physics are real. And I do think over the last handful of years, the speed at which intersubjective reality can be created and maybe maintained has dramatically changed and accelerated. In the GameStop example, One can imagine owning GameStop as being the membership card for the anti-establishment club. And one could imagine 100 million people being willing to pay a $1,000 initiation fee to be a member of this club, which gets you to a $100 billion valuation. The club, in a sense, could be its own kind of intersubjective reality. And, you know, in fact, GameStop could make a business of it, could actually create sales and marketing and so forth around that. You know, don't get your video game on Apple App Store, but be a member of the club, etc. I think, and you know, I have no clue how to get there or what the path should be, but I do believe the world requires what I would call curated knowledge. So I believe that a hydrogen atom is one neutron, one proton, one electron. Why do I believe this? You know, I believe it because I read it in high school chemistry text some time ago. And that text exists and has more weight than what a random person might say about the physical properties of the universe in a random context. I would recommend an essay by Jonathan Rush called The Constitution of Knowledge. A final comment on GameStop. I do think both the action and the attention that the story is getting is really the first you know, kind of canary in a coal mine 
that I've seen that the bubble is getting somewhat old in the tooth. But I want to surround that statement with all kinds of qualifiers. I would not bet on it, even to a small degree as we speak. You know, GameStop is bubbling again at this moment. We'll have another round of stimulus checks that the same algorithmic momentum machine very well may be able to be reinitiated, restarted, etc. You know, I do think as a practical matter, even though the bubble is getting old, can't really be short anything and the combination dynamic of locked-up index funds and algorithms watching each other, looking at volume, momentum, means there's really nothing that's too big to be inflated or reinflated and sort of no absolute size that can't be maintained, at least for a considerable period of time. So it really is a time to be very, very cautious in terms of any public markets and public securities. It's actually been 10 years since we formulated 10 investment principles at White Box. Today, though nobody's asked, I'd like to revisit two in particular. I'd preface that by, well, I'm not going to read the 10 principles. The first principle, which I still wholeheartedly agree with, is that risk is not the source of return. Return comes from the efficient, systematic, intelligent elimination of risk. I believe that as strongly today as I did 10 years ago, and I think it's very uh, foundational. The principles I'd like to revisit, one of the principles said, uh, right or wrong, the market always has a message before one can disagree with it one has to listen to it one has to distill it one has to find its coherence and this was you know sort of in contrast i wanted to be in contrast to both the market ideologues who deify markets and there's no point in having a conversation as it were with the market because you know the market is just always right you know, just go along, be the market, duplicate the market, you know, that school on the one hand, and the Graham slash Buffett school, which said, think of the market as an insane, manic, depressive lunatic who's not taking its medicines, and I didn't think that was right either. But with all that said, I think today, and this has been happening for a while as opposed to 10 years ago, there's much less information content in the market. There's much more noise. There's quite a bit less signal. It's both harder and less productive to try and distill valuable information from market signals. There's simply, if one thinks about it, there's much less information content in $100 coming out of somebody's paycheck every month and going into an index fund than that person taking $100 from a particular 
paycheck and buying a company's stock because he liked their product or he had a positive interaction with the company or whatever reason. The market used to have more of a distilling of signals from multitude of people with multitude perspectives and multitude of different kinds of interreactions. I heard Stanley Druckenmuller in a speech that used to be the case if you had what he called news action, which is company reports bad news, pre-announces earnings, or something of a disappointing nature. Stock opens down uh, 6 8 10%. And then market action, you know, market, while well, it opens down 8 9 10%, but ends up closing unchanged. He said in the past, and I think this is true, the market action was the thing to listen to. The market action was right. That stock was very likely to go up over the next handful of months. It was the the bad news was out. It was kitchen sink sort of cleaning, and there was good stuff to come. That was in the past. Druckenmiller says, now it's just two algos playing laser tag. Not exactly sure what that about that metaphor, though it's very catchy, and I liked it, and I think that's true. At a more macro level, there's much less information content in the Fed buying $80 billion of securities a month and their decision on how they split that between long-term bonds, mortgage-backed securities, other stuff. There's less information content in the Fed doing that with their multiple objectives and multiple political pressures versus countless individuals, you know, in some sense, trying to maximize their investment returns. I think it's hard to overstate how broad-based and how significant the central bank presence in all markets, but the absolute dominance of the risk-free sovereign market by central banks in terms of diminishing the function and information that markets can and do disseminate. That said, you know, I do think at a macro level, watching markets and thinking about markets can and should, in fact, give context to whatever else one is thinking about in the financial slash business realm. I heard the other day a Biden economic advisor, maybe he's the new head of the Council of Economic Advisors, point out that the stock market's at record highs, or at least very close around, and the record lines at food banks and shelters. I think obviously that's true, and I think what it really says is that the government has not been very good at getting stimulus, getting aid, moving resources to the actual affected parts of the economy. That over time, we've seen that basically government stimulus, government spending, monetary policy moves financial markets much less effect on the real economy. And I think it's you know, extraordinarily likely that whatever the next round of stimulus, whether $1,400 checks get passed, they will have more effect on financial markets than lines at food banks.
I think way back when, in the early stages of the pandemic, I thought it was interesting and close where you had the worst economy ever butting heads with the most massive stimulus and cash injection we'd ever seen. And at the time, I thought the cash injection would win and that financial markets would actually do well, but it was close. I mean, I think today it's fairly safe to say, you know, as long as massive stimulus is on the table, financial markets will be okay. So I'm downgrading the listen to the markets as a principle and suggesting that in looking at the markets, one should be looking to create a context and background for more focus-specific decisions, which sort of leads to my revision of the next principle where I said, be a generalist, see a lot. Investing is about the picture and not the pixels. I think my use of the word generalist is misguided or doesn't properly reflect my current thinking. Because all sort of asset markets are quite rich, there's almost no you know, sort of asset class that one can really point to and say, go here. Though, obviously, previously I've spoken about liking financial stocks and community banks in particular. So I think, you know, very much it's important to find very specific sort of niches, very specific areas one might have a particular insight. That said, it remains extraordinarily important to, one, be open-minded and flexible towards what's frequently called the adjacent possible stuff next to what it is that you're actually looking at or thinking about and doing, but connected. I think it's also important to think in a multi-dimensional, multi-disciplined way. I want both a theory and data. Without a theory, without a guess as to what's the process that's driving what's going on, data is just noise. And a theory without data is just a guess. Maybe a corollary to this is I try very hard to avoid direct competition. I want to be in niches or have an approach that is not going up against better capitalized, more resourced, smarter, harder working people. And I think in the current environment, that's particularly important. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.